How many of y'all were around during Hurricane Sandy, 2012? A lot of us. We used to talk about this all the time as a church. Like constantly we talk about Hurricane Sandy because we were two weeks old when that hurricane happened. And so for us, it was like the first time that we um, said, we're like, hey, we're, we're a church. Like we can help. Like we, we can go out and do stuff. And so uh, we went uh, around. We just started walking around. We went to Red Hook. Um, Red Hook was super damaged. Does anybody live in Red Hook or know about? Yeah, anyway. Really badly damaged, like awfully damaged. And so we walked around and this, this guy was like, hey, will you come into our house and will you help us um, uh, tear out my drywall? It's all wet. And will you help us remove my furniture? And we're like, yeah, we'll do that. So we go in, we're like tearing down drywall, we're removing furniture, we're breathing in the mold. It's good. That's why I cough right now. Um, and uh, and the, the guy is super thankful. And then he goes, hey, he's like, where are you from? And I'm like, actually, I live just a couple blocks away. I was like, but we are, we're, are a part of a church, right? And so he says, he goes, oh, you're one of them, right? And that's about right. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're one of them. Um, that was like such a poignant time. That was the most important time in the life of our church early on. It was an incredibly important time in the life of our church for two reasons. Number one, service became part of our DNA. And number two, when he said, you are one of them, it changed the way we did church fundamentally. It did. Now, this guy was, he was good. He was a good human being. I left early, but I think Juby and Sam were there. And didn't he pull out like some vodka and you all did some shots with him? Is that true? Am I making that up? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, yeah. So, so, yeah, so he was an okay guy. But the one of them thing really struck with me because I was like, I was like, all right, what does that mean that he thinks one of them? And I started thinking about the way we, we interact with people and what we do. And the truth of the matter is what we do is we audition people, right? We audition people. We say that they're one of us or that they're one of them. That's what we do. I think in middle school, it happens badly, like really badly, because if you're my age, you used to write the note that says, do you like me? Yes, no, or maybe. Remember this note? Any of y'all ever write it? Yeah. yeah. And it's a little bit of an audition. It was a lesson in humiliation for me, but it was a little bit of an audition, right? What you're doing is you send that note and you give it to your friend who gives it to their friend who gives it to the person you like in life science class, right? And then they're going to tell you whether you are in or out. They're going to tell you whether you're one of us or whether you're one of them. Dating today? Oh, my Lord. Y'all, I admire you. Um, because now it's not about a note that gets passed. Now it's like a two-second swipe and you know whether you're one of us or one of them, right? That's, that's the way it works. We like to categorize people. That's what we do. When I uh, tried out for the basketball team when I was in seventh grade, I was the last person cut. I still cry about it to this day. But, um, and it was tough. It was tough because all my friends that were on the team, they weren't friends anymore. Like, all of a sudden, I didn't make it, so I was one of them. It was the us with their cool jackets. I just wanted one of those jackets, really. And then I was them. That's, that's what I became. And so when this guy said, one of us and one of them, like, I, I resonated. I was like, yeah, we do this. We do this as adults. Like, we want to hang out with the people we have similar interests with. We want to hang out with the people that make as much money as we do, same socioeconomic class. We want people who are, who are comfortable with our culture and our ethnicity, right? That's what we want. Or at least you're able to code switch to make that happen. That's what we want to do. We, we ask people, we say, what are your values? What do you love? What, 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 what do you, are you a Mets fan? Like, we care about this stuff, right? And the reason we care about this stuff is because all Ultimately, we're auditioning people to decide whether they're one of us or one of them. We do this online as well. Online, if somebody messes with us, you're going to get blocked fast, right? You don't share my values. You don't share uh, my same interests. In fact, you are on the other side of the spectrum. And so we've even created a name for it when we talk about it online. It's called cancel culture. Y'all know about cancel culture? Y'all been canceled before? I have. It's good times. <laughs> um, yeah, 
Cancel culture. So it, 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 we, we, we separate ourselves into categories even in our online, even in our social media world. And so when this guy said, you're one of them, I thought to myself, you know what? He's absolutely right to say that because the church is the worst at separating people into us and them. The absolute worst. How many people grew up in a church where you heard or you were asked, are you saved? Are you a believer? Are you born again? Anybody? Yeah. That's coded language. And it's coded language to say, are you one of us? Are you somebody who can be trusted, somebody who can work and serve in this church? If you're not saved or born again or a believer, really what that means is you're welcome, but only to a certain extent, because at some point, you got to take the next step in order to be fully loved, right? And so we code language in the church. We say, are you a believer? Are you saved, right? That's what we do. You know, it's interesting. Uh, our church, when we started seven years ago, we had the support of, of five or six really large churches across America, like giving us hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then when we decided to do two things, we decided to become LGBTQIA affirming and we decided to uh, become an anti-racist church or strive towards being an anti-racist church. And literally overnight, I got phone calls. Literally overnight, they were like, hey, we love you. We're going to pray for you, but we can't give you any money anymore. And I said, why? And they said, because you took these two stances and now we can't, we can't pay you any longer. And what I realized behind all this, in that midst of that conversation, is I realized this, this us and them, this auditioning, what it really boils down to is, are you beneficial to me or not? Like, do you benefit me or do you not benefit me? And what I recognize is that, is that us as a church, we no longer benefited them. Like, like for, for them to talk about our church would make people in their communities uncomfortable. And therefore, we were no longer a church we, they could point to and be like, look, this is a church we support, right? Like, we messed with their theology. And so there's this us versus them. I totally get what my friend was saying when he said that. You're one of them. I get it. And I thought about him, and I thought about the fact that he probably went to church at one time, and he went to church, and my guess, yo, this guy had colorful language. Like, like, like I was impressed with the way he strung words together. And I, I thought to myself, like, oh, if he walked into church like that, there's a chance that, that maybe they, they, they pushed him out. They said, you're not one of us, you're, you're, you're them, right? Like, or maybe he just didn't, like, uh, you know, the, um, MLK says that, that uh, church is the most segregated place in America, right? And so maybe this gentleman, you know, he walked into a door and the white Western culture and the white Western interpretation didn't quite work for him. And that made him one of them. Right. And so I thought about that and I thought, you know, all this gentleman is doing is he's saying this is the way the church made him feel. And so now I'm categorized as the them and he has every right to feel that way, like every right. And at that point, seven years ago, in the midst of Hurricane Sandy, where some people were drinking shots, sinners, um, <laughs> I kid, I kid, um, um, we made a decision, and the decision we were going to be authentic community that doesn't separate into us and them. Way easier said than done. But let me tell you what we wrote down. We wrote down this. We said, we invest our whole selves in vulnerable, inclusive, and imperfect community, committed to living out our stories together. We build honest relationships with one another, and we are fully invested in living and affirming the stories of absolutely everyone, regardless of gender, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or socioeconomic standing. This is what we strive to do. We're in our vision series, so this is our vision, this is our value of community, right? And like I've been saying, if you have been here for a long time, if you were here year one, who's here year one? I just want to see. Thank you. There's like 12, 12 of you. Nice job. Nice job. This should sound familiar to you. you. This should sound really familiar. Make it a recommitment. Recommit to giving, recommit to volunteering, recommit to serving, recommit to being a part of the community. If you are new here, we want you to hear this value of community and we want you to commit to it. Commit to serving, being a part of the community, commit to giving to it, right? It matters, right? So that's what we're wanting to do with this vision series. And so our vision of community. Now, seven years, you get a chance to reflect. And I've reflected on it. 
and I'm always hard on myself, and I'm always hard on my job or whatever the case may be, and I'm like, oh, we're not the authentic community I want us to be yet. Like, we're just not there yet. Like, there's still some decolonization that needs to happen. There's still ways in which we can be better allies. There's ways in which we can serve better. Uh, and I think about that, and then I think back to actually what made me write this, and it was the fact that the people in Acts were in the same boat that I was in. Same exact boat. Whenever I think we're not getting it right, I look at the people in Acts. They definitely didn't get it right. And it's wonderful. So I want you all to take a trip with me into Acts. Can you all do that? This is like a throwback service today. It's not going to be the 55-minute one you're used to. We're going to sing. We're going to talk about Acts. We're going to get a little uncomfortable. Y'all down? Just like, okay, I'm going to walk out real quick. So here's what happens, right? Jesus comes back. And when Jesus comes back, he's raised from the dead. He shows up and the disciples and the apostles. This is Romans or Acts 1, if you want to open up your Bibles. And they're like, Jesus, you came back. This is amazing. This is incredible. What I want to do is I, I want you now to separate us. Separate us from the Roman Empire. We go, let's, let's do us. We become strong. We become mighty. And that's them over there. Are you going to do that for us, Jesus? And Jesus goes, no, nah, I'm not really interested in that. And then they go, well, what are you interested in? And he goes, listen, I want you to be a witness to me. In fact, I'll read it for you. It says this. They gathered around him and they said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the time or the dates the father has set by his own authority. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all of Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So he says, do the things that I did. I want you to go out, and I want you to heal like I healed, love like I loved, include like I included, eat with the people that I ate with. Do all those things. Be like me. And then he handed out bracelets that said WWJD, just so they wouldn't forget. <laughs> right? That, that's, that's what happened. And, uh, and, he said, and they said, okay. And he says, do it in Jerusalem. And they all go, yeah, that's cool. Because they were already in Jerusalem. <laughs> they were there. So it would be like our church saying, like, yeah, let's all eat brunch afterwards. And they'll be like, yeah, this is easy. It's right back there. You know, like, it had that feel to it. Oh, that's convenient. That's easy. Yeah, Jesus, we're going to include people, love people the way you did it in Jerusalem. And then Jesus goes, and do it in Judea as well. And they're like, oh, oh okay. Like, that's cool. I'll do it in Judea. Judea would be like going, like, you know, going up to the Bronx or into Westchester, you know, like a little further away. But still good, right? You're like, okay. I can handle this. I'll go up and I'll, I'll, I'll show people up there who you're like, Jesus. I'll, I'll witness about who you were and who you are, right? And then Jesus goes, and I also want you to do it in Samaria. And people are like, okay, I'll do it. Actually, I won't go to Samaria. <laughs> they were like, no, because Samaritans, it's like going to Jersey, y'all. Like, <laughs> that's what it's like. They were like, we're not doing this. I will, that joke will never get old for me either. <laughs> never. I'm going to say it all the time. Um, but here's the deal. They were like, we don't want to go to Samaria because the Samaritans, they used to be part of us, but then they mixed ethnicities. We don't, we don't like that. They mixed ethnicities, and they started worshiping their own gods. They created their own language. In fact, what, the, what people in Jerusalem would do is they would cross a river in order not to have to go through Samaria. That's how big of a deal it was. And Jesus goes, no, I want you to go there and testify to the good work that I've done. And then they go, is there another option? And Jesus goes, the ends of the earth, which at that point was the Roman Empire. So that was Rome. So basically he said, you can do that or you can go to the ends of the earth, which is your enemy, Rome. So now you're going to go tell your enemy. Like to put it in, in today's context, it'd be like, yeah, tell about me in Brooklyn. Tell about me in the Bronx and Westchester. Tell about me in Jersey. And, and people are going, what? Are you sure? And even LGBTQIA people, yes, even LGBTQIA people. Like even people who don't look or act like me, yes, even, the, even people who watch Big Bang Theory. <laughs> and Jesus goes, not them. 
Not them. It's in our Bible. And so at that point, at that point, Jesus leaves. He goes up. He ascends, right? And he ascends, and, um, and we get this wonderful passage in Scripture. Because these angels appear, and all they say is, why are you looking up? Get to work. That's what the angels say. So you've got to imagine, like, people just like, all right, Jesus just told me to do this. Like, why are you looking up? Get to work. That's what the angels come and they say. And people were confused, right? But here's the deal. You know what happens eight chapters later? We go eight chapters through Acts. You know what happens? Nothing. They're still sitting in Jerusalem. They're still there. Why are they still there? Because it's so much easier to be with people who benefit you. It's a lot easier to audition people and do an us versus them. And if they were in Jerusalem, as long as they were there, it still felt like us, right? We like that. That's the kind of community we want. How does this work for me and make me feel good and comfortable? And so they were still there, right? And that's good news for us. Like, it's good news for me when I don't think we're getting it right. The only thing that made them leave was the fact that people in Jerusalem started becoming persecuted. So it was like you had an option, be arrested or killed, or go and do the work Jesus asked you to do. And people were like, this is a tough decision, like legitimately, but I'll go and do the work, right? That's what they said. So there's one guy, Paul. How many people know Paul? Paul the apostle? All right, he was an apostle. He, he goes, and he actually goes to the ends of the earth. He goes to Rome. And what Paul tells the Romans is something that has changed our church fundamentally. This is why we have our community thing. This is why it mattered so much uh, with, with the gentleman with Hurricane Sandy. Because what Paul says is so incredibly important. It changed everything for us. Everything. And I'll read it to you. This is what it says. Paul's reading to the Romans. They're a brand new community trying to get started. He says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. And honor one another above yourselves. Now, why did that matter so much to me? Because it's the Greek translation for the word love. In fact, it's a Greek translation we see maybe five times in our whole Bible. But the word is storge love. He's saying, have storge love for one another. What does the word storge mean in the Greek? It means this. Storge is a natural affection. It is an affection that is not chosen. It's the type of love a mother might have for a newborn. It's a love simply because that person is there. There is no choice. There is no decision. Storge love is natural and innate love that comes from within. So there are four types of love talked about in the Bible. First one, agape. Y'all ever hear of agape before? That means selfless love. It's the one that's talked about most. Selfless love. But you choose to be selfless towards somebody else. It's a, that's a choice. Eros love. That's your physical love. I'm attracted to you. Let's show that attraction physically. Right? That's eros love. There's philia love, which is, uh, you know, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. They really should have called it Friendship City or something like that because it's a love about friends. It's about how you get to know somebody, and over time, as you get to know that person, you love them. That's filial love. All those are used in the Bible. And then storge love. Storge love means you're loving someone simply because they've been given to you and you've been given to them. That is it. There's nothing else. There's no like, well, maybe I'll let, no. There's no audition. There's, there's, there's no sense in which, like, well, you're one of us or one of them. No, all that is thrown out. Storge love means, hey, you are a group of people who have no business being together, none whatsoever, and yet here you are together in community, love one another that way. Storge love. This is what Tim Keller says about it. I don't quote, quote him much anymore, but I like this one. It says this, Storge love is not a discriminating love. It's a love for people who are not made for each other. 
It's for people who have nothing to do with each other. It's for people who grow fond of one another simply because they are there. And so three weeks into our church, I found out about this story gay love, and I said, this is what our community is going to be. And other people echoed, and they said, Jonathan, you have to make this story gay love our community. The truth of the matter is, for the past seven years, we are a group of people who have no business being together. We don't. And I say that in the nicest way possible. <laughs> and what I mean by that is what we've done is we've broken up our comfortable spaces. What we've done is we've broken up some of our values. And we've, we've looked at other people and we say, oh my gosh, in the world out there, I, I don't think I would have ever become friends with you. I don't think I would have ever have given or shared my life with you. But because you've been given to me and I to you, here we are loving one another. Story gay love. That's authentic communal love. And so when I think about seven years, I think about all the ways that has happened or still has to happen. So I asked some people in church, I said, hey, have you experienced this before? Mary and Natasha, I asked them, or I asked Mary, and Mary said, yeah, I've experienced this. Mary and Natasha are sitting in the front by the way. Hey, y'all, they're getting married next week. Still, right? Did I blow up your spot? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. And I love what Mary said. I said, Mary, like, why forefront? And she said this. She said, it matters to me because it's a place to unpack my faith in a way that welcomes doubt and honors the diversity and inclusiveness of God's love. And I thought to myself, self, that's pretty amazing. Why is it pretty amazing? Because the truth of the matter is whenever I've walked into churches in the past, I've walked in, and, and there's a sense that it's not safe. There's a sense in which I'm okay up until a certain point, and then at that point, any doubt, any idea of, of exclusivity, that, that sort of hits me, right? And eventually I'll be found out, or somebody's going to say I'm a fraud, or somebody's going to find out what I really believe, right? And that's scary. And to hear Mary say, no, I like this place because of lets me doubt, because there's an inclusivity that happens, because there's a diversity of thought. That's story gay love. It's my greatest privilege, it's our greatest privilege to be able, when people walk through this door, people who are like, listen, I, I feel like I'm losing my faith. I don't know if I believe in God. I've been kicked out of my last church. Uh, my orientation sets me apart. My identity sets me apart. My ethnicity sets me apart. Please tell me, please, please tell me that this is a safe place. And it is our privilege to be able to say, yes, it is a safe place with no strings attached. That's what Mary shows us. That's what Storge love looks like. Ryan and Jess Sarudi have had quite the year. That's an understatement. Y'all should ask them about it. So I asked them, I said, hey, what does Forefront look like for you? Now, Ryan and Jess, they just bought a house. They had a bunch of family changes. They run our prayer ministry. So whenever we say, hey, there's somebody over there to pray with you, like that's them setting that all up for us. And Ryan said this. Ryan says, because no matter what state of life you're in, there are plenty of forefront members who have been there themselves. And even if they haven't, they're willing and able to support you in your times of need. I remember one church I went to, somebody walked in and they said, hey, I need help. I need to be supported. And I remember very well the pastor going, yes, we can help you. We can definitely help you. And then I saw that pastor. I was probably 17 at the time. I saw that pastor again. I said, hey, where's so-and-so who needed the help? And he said, well, so-and-so didn't really believe in baptism. So I thought there might be a better community they can go to. It's part of what made me leave the church, right? That, that kind of thing. And what I love about Forefront is that nobody's sitting there asking Ryan and Jess their theological perspective on baptism. 
We simply help because we are called to help. Ryan and Jess are given to us and we are given to them. And so there's storge love there. And that's what I love about their story. I think, um, I think there are a lot of you here, maybe I'm guessing, a lot of you here who are in a place of reconstructing faith. You don't have to show me your hands. <laughs> but you're like, you know, the faith I grew up with, the faith that my parents had, it might not be mine anymore. It might not make sense to me any longer. And what I appreciate about you is that you're not like, well, that means I'm just going to throw the whole thing away and give it all up. You're like, no, let me figure this out. What does this look like now? What does this journey look like now? What does it mean to be a Christ follower? What does the good news of Jesus Christ look like? And when we have story gay love for one another, authentic community, when we hear that from people walking in, that should be like the thing that excites us most because it means we get to journey together. Caroline says this. She says, I'm thankful for Forefront because it challenges everything I thought I knew about my faith. And now I feel released from obligation and guilt, but I have a deeper connection to Christ. That's Storge love. The ability to see people in their doubt and in their struggle and say, yeah, let's journey together. This is going to be amazing. Simply because I've been given to you and you've been given to me. So seven years ago, this gentleman said, you're one of them. We changed our approach. We work towards authentic community. We're nowhere close to this Storge love. But a few years later, that gentleman came to our church. And he showed up on Easter Sunday. He's since moved to, to Florida. But he showed up on Easter Sunday. And I said, hey, you're here. And he, I gave him a big hug. A few other people gave him a big hug. And he goes, y'all are crazy. I just want to see what this was about. <laughs> and that's Storge love. It's love simply because someone's been given to us and we have been given to them. That is what's going to change our church. That's what's going to change the city outside. That's what's going to change our nation. It's not like the, the list of morals and platitudes that we have to have in order to be considered good Christians. It's the fact that we've been given to one another and that's that. There's nothing else. There's no audition. There's no us or them. There is only the good news of the gospel and us honestly and authentically and messily following that Jesus Christ. That is what it is all about. And that's what's going to make this community great. That's what made it great for the past seven years. And that's what's going to make it great for the next 500. That is what's going to happen. And maybe we get it wrong. Good. I hope we get it wrong. Jim Rohner, one of our deacons, says, hey, you know what? Um, if we're going to err, let's just err on the side of people. And I'm down for that. So here's what I'm calling us to on our seven-year anniversary. I'm calling us to Story Gay Love. Who are the people in your lives who just come in? And maybe they make you uncomfortable. Maybe they're not in the same uh, ethnicity or culture that you're in. Maybe they have a different tradition. Maybe they, they're completely and utterly different. And in the real world, in the outside world, you'd have no business like hanging out with them. You wouldn't know them. But let's make this the real world, right? Where we just are given to one another. I mean, it's what Jesus did. Jesus had a bunch of jihadists, zealots, tax collectors, embezzlers, murderers. That was his crew. What will our crew look like? Let's have the same thing. Practice story, get love, practice community. So what I'll say before I'm done is this. Y'all, why are we looking up? Let's get to work. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for this little known word. Thank you for the way it shaped my heart, shaped the hearts of so many here. Thank you for your faithfulness in the midst of imperfectly practicing some of this kind of love.
And thank you for your faithfulness as we attempt to practice it for the next seven years. God, I thank you so much for the grace that comes when we fail and for the never-ending love that comes from a community like ours being together. Pray this all in your name. Amen.